Welcome to episode 81 of The Climate Champions. Check out past episodes on theclimatechampions.com. I'm Lee Crevat, host of The Climate Champions. If you or someone you know is a climate champion, please let me know at crevatenergyinnovations.com. This podcast is being brought to you in part by the Department of Energy's Advanced Grid Research Group, whose purpose is to accelerate innovation in electric transmission and distribution technologies and create next-generation devices, software, and tools to help modernize the electric grid. This week, my featured guest is Peter Asmus, Research Director at Guidehouse Insights and also publisher of four books, three of which address environmental issues. Peter leads Guidehouse Insights' microgrid solution and supports the microgrid's tracker and virtual power plant solutions. He's a global expert on emerging energy distribution network models, the adoption of creative strategies to maximize value for distributed energy resources, virtual power plants, nanogrids, and other renewables. Please take extra care during the holidays. COVID infections continue to increase many places in the world, so please be careful out there. And please remember, we're all in this together. While being cautious and alert, please be supportive and kind. And take the time to thank people that are taking personal risks to keep our world moving forward. And if you are one of those people, thank you very, very much. Welcome to The Climate Champions. I'm Lee Crevat, and I'm here with Peter Asmus, Research Director at Guidehouse Insights. Peter, welcome to The Climate Champions. Thanks so much for having me on. With regards to climate change, can you talk about your motivating moment? What got you started in your journey? Well, I started thinking about climate change when I was writing my first book, I was a co-author, and back then there was a, a scientist, you may remember, James Hansen, I believe was his name, and we interviewed him in this book. The book was called In Search of Environmental Excellence, which at the time, I didn't really like that title. There was a book called In Search of Excellence, Tom Peters. It was sort of about how businesses get more efficient, sort of a business book. And I was kind of the co-author, and I was a little skeptical at that time about the role businesses would play in climate solutions, but that was the theme of the book. And so I ended up writing a chapter about climate change. And I remember talking about these sort of scary scenarios of the future. And it did strike me that this was possible back in 1990 when this book came out, it wasn't that common of a topic. People were sort of starting to talk about it. I think the research was done in about 1988. And so I was also an environmental activist at the time. In fact, I was more focused on shutting down a nuclear power plant in Sacramento called Rancho Seco, which was then my next book was on that topic. So it started for me as more of a journalist and writing about climate change and sort of these future sounding scary scenarios, which I guess if we'd look back, you probably would say we're already there from what we were talking about back then. And a lot has obviously happened, but I would say the last few years, it just seems like everyone back then was talking about how the models were uncertain and there were dire scenarios, less dire scenarios. It seems to me that the more dire scenarios are coming true. And in fact, I think things are even accelerating 
way faster than even those dire scenarios predicted. What's published are the things that, after getting attacked, can still stand up. So they're kind of the high 90s, 100% scenarios and examples and data. But there's dozens and dozens of 50%ers, things that may happen, may not happen. But if half of those come in that are 50%, those are much worse things. And they're starting to show that they're higher than 50% and they're coming in. Yeah, I guess the other thing I'd say to that is that I started off more as an environmental activist trying to stop things. I mentioned Rancho Seco. So that was, as I don't know if you remember this, it was the only nuclear power plant closed in the U.S. by citizen vote, actually a ballot initiative, because it was run by a municipal utility. What climate change and more specifically renewable energy was attractive to me is it's easier stopping something bad. It's harder to replace it with a solution. And that's what was appealing to me about renewable energy. And so my series of books, I mentioned the first one in search of environmental excellence. Then there was reinventing electric utilities, competition, citizen action, and clean power, which told the story of the Sacramento Municipal Utility District. And then the next one was called Reaping the Wind, which I just found out is being reprinted, which was then the story of wind power. And that's when I really started getting into renewable energy starting with wind power. But after that, my last book, which came out about 10 years ago, was a University of California press book with a very boring title, Introduction to Energy in California. But it's like a field guide history of California's energy with lots of photos. And so that book was more interesting to me about with the photos. But the general drift of that was about climate change, reducing carbon, and more of a broader response, including energy efficiency and other things beyond just renewable energy. You mentioned that you were an environmentalist. What was your motivating moment there? Well, I mean, it sounds kind of quaint, but I grew up being kind of a nature boy. I always, I'm a bird watcher, for example, and I still love to go hiking. So part of it was just enjoying nature at a very simple moment. It wasn't like I had a scientific background. In fact, I was really just more of a writer and as a journalist, and I fell into energy by total accident. I was just looking for a job, and I actually applied online and did get a job working for the energy trade press. It was McGraw-Hill, and they were very boring stories, but that's how I started and just covering what was happening in California. And I remember my New York editors sort of being very skeptical about the things I was reporting on. They kept saying, oh, that's that California stuff, wind power, solar power. They're nuts to close this nuclear reactor. They're going to go bankrupt, etc." And so that's kind of where it started. It really started with just being a bird watcher as a child and appreciating nature, being a journalist, and then sort of eventually being tired of stopping bad things. I was also an investigative reporter looking at corruption in government. And then I started shifting to environmental issues, and then from environmental issues to renewable energy issues, and then from that, sustainable energy, and now more of a focus on resiliency, microgrids, and stuff like that. So you gave a very short description of the path you've taken. Do you want to expand on your journey? Well, you know, if I want to expand on it, well, the thing I didn't mention, also part of this is I am a creative person, and I actually write songs and had a band. So I actually created a band that played a solar-powered concert on the state capitol steps in Sacramento in the campaign to close Rancho Seco. And then I wrote 
two energy-related songs. One, when we had the Enron, so-called Enron blackouts in California, it was called Rolling Blackouts. And I have to change the words when the blackouts ended. So it was Rolling Blackouts, Where Did They Go? That's the name of the song. And then the next one was more of an anthem called Clean Power Right Now, which I've actually still even performed at some events. I performed it just two years ago in a video I did about microgrids. And so that band, though, played the first few gigs were all about energy and the SMUD, the Sacramento Municipal Utility Board. So that was my other part, sort of my creative aspect being geared towards environmentalism. I write poetry and stuff like that about nature too. So I'm sort of a, as you say, a creative person, but I've just sort of tried to make it more practical to earn a living. And that's how I ended up getting into basically becoming a consultant in this field. Any willingness to share any of your music? Oh, sure. I mean, I have some recordings I could forward that to you. I'd have to dig some of that stuff up. But yes, and I still play mainly acoustic. My band, I'm 64 years old. Having a band was great, but after 20 years being, you know, I call it still kind of a garage band and basically working full time, it was just too hard to keep it going. I have dabbled in music. I've written a few things. I play a little guitar, but nothing compared to what you're talking about. But it's fun. It's relaxing. Oh, it's great. And I still love to play once in a while. I particularly love to play outside. I live north of San Francisco, just a block away from the beach. So for me now, it's more sort of late in the afternoon. I like to go outside, look at the mountains and just noodle on the guitar, play some of my songs, play some other folk songs. And I do still play like at some open mics and I've organized some events where I've also performed. I'm going to send you some links of me playing so you can have a good laugh. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. Hopefully you won't laugh when you hear some of my music, but if you do, that's fine. When you meet people that doubt the data or doubt that there is climate change, how do you convince them otherwise? Well, my basic argument is even if you don't necessarily believe in climate change, the solutions to climate change provide so many other benefits that it still makes sense to do it. Like clean energy or electric vehicles. Of course, Gavin Newsom just announced this major initiative to get gasoline cars off the roads, I believe by 2035, I think it was. And I noticed on social media, someone said, wow, that's bold. And then the next person said, that sounds foolish to me you know, or something. And I, I haven't responded yet, but what I would say is these solutions like solar, batteries, electric vehicles, energy efficiency, they provide all these economic benefits. The thinking that it's the economy versus the environment is old school, outdated thinking. I mean, even when we had the federal government trying to support coal plants, all these utilities are just shutting them down, just saying they don't make sense anymore. Now, a lot of them are switching to natural gas, which is kind of a halfway point. It's a little better than coal. But a lot of utilities are realizing that wind power in many markets, especially in the Midwest, in the U.S., the Great Plains is cheaper often than even natural gas. And solar costs just keep coming down, keep coming down faster than any of the forecasts said. So the good news is, is these solutions are viable solutions. So why wouldn't you embrace a more clean energy, sustainable energy future? I don't really see any negative. They also create more jobs than coal plants or nuclear reactors. If you look at the amount of jobs created per unit of energy deployed, 
things like energy efficiency and rooftop solar provide the most amount of jobs because they're more labor intensive and you're hiring people locally. What's not to like? You don't have to convince me, but I think you might be able to convince some deniers. Yes. I hope so. What do you do at Guidehouse Insights to help mitigate climate change? And if you want, can you talk about some of the books you've written and why you haven't written one in 10 years? <laughs> well, at Guidehouse, I'm part of Guidehouse that's called Guidehouse Insights. It was originally a small startup called Pike Research, and they hired me just as a freelance contractor. The first report I did was actually on ocean energy. And I just published a blog yesterday again on ocean energy. It was funny at the time, there was a lot of hype about it, tidal power, wave power. And then I just never quite gained traction, although I think it's having a bit of a comeback in part because of climate change. Governments, utilities are having 100% renewable energy portfolios. You could get there with just solar and wind, but it becomes a little more difficult. I always say we need diversity. So you don't want to put all of your eggs into solar or all of your eggs into wind, you want some of both, but you also could have forms of hydroelectric, biomass, geothermal, and ocean energy, tidal power. All the arrows in the quiver, why not? And you never know where you're gonna get your next big innovation. So let's just pursue them and see what rises to the top. And over time, that'll probably change. True, and it's whatever's available locally. If you're on a coastal community and there's some tidal resources right there, like in North America, the Bay of Fundy by Nova Scotia is one of the best tidal resources in the world. Why not top that? I know that Oregon was looking at wave power for a while. I don't know exactly what's all happened there. So that was my first report. And then the second one was on microgrids and that one sold so well. So this is in 2009. That was after the last recession we had, there was a lot of money going into smart grid. And so at the time, my report was more sort of saying there's smart grid, then there's microgrid, and kind of viewing them as almost opposites. Although I think over time now you could sort of view them as dealing with sort of similar things. Although what's specific about a microgrid is that it can disconnect from the grid and still operate when the grid goes down. And that's becoming a bigger and bigger issue now with wildfires here in where I'm in California, the hurricanes on the East Coast, you have tornadoes, you've got floods, you know, I mean, microgrids won't solve all those problems, but it does give you more resiliency. And it allows you to get off of just diesel generators, which was the default sort of solution just to have a backup generator. Well, with COVID-19 on top of it, do you really just want, like in California, with the wildfires, all these emissions and then if you have a utility maybe shuts off the grid for public power safety shutoffs, do you want all those diesel generators that then come online? It just doesn't make a lot of sense. So the beauty of the microgrid is you don't throw out the diesel generator, but you just have solar and batteries and you use it as your last resort. So a lot of microgrids are 100% renewable energy, but many of them still have some fossil fuel, but they're sort of like the backstop. I'm a big fan of microgrids. I've always considered them one of the pieces, a key piece of smart grid. Yeah, and I think that's what people are thinking now. And now utilities are starting to deploy microgrids too. When I first started looking at microgrids, there were utilities deploying microgrids, but those more like in Alaska where there is no grid and all you have are small little communities with little microgrids. But now you are seeing, I mean, in California, San Diego Gas and Electric 
sort of built the first big community microgrid called Borrego Springs. You probably know about that. So that was sort of the poster child and it keeps expanding. And now I believe they're saying it's going to 100% renewable energy as well. And so the other thing that's good about a microgrid is they can evolve over time. And so that's what I tell people is someone says, oh no, it sounds too complicated. I don't want to build a microgrid. How am I going to figure it all out? Well, you don't have to figure it all out right away. You can incrementally add stuff. And the good news is as more solar gets deployed, those are all planting seeds to future microgrids. I think the biggest insight a lot of people had last year during in California, the public power safety shutoffs, including my local fire chief, is that solar goes down when the grid goes down. And a lot of people are going, well, that doesn't make sense. You've invested your own money in, in your own power source and you can't even use it when it would be the most valuable. And so what the local fire station now wants to do is to add a battery. And I've been helping them do that. They actually have a really old generator from like 19, I don't know if it's 45 or 51 or something, but, and they're not going to throw it away, but they're just hoping to never have to use it or only use it like maybe if the sun doesn't shine for five days and the battery runs out, then you still have that backup system. Well, hopefully we'll talk after the podcast because one of the companies I've launched this year has a solution to keep solar running when there's an outage on the grid. All right. We'll have to talk about that. It's pretty cool. Also, on one of my podcasts in the Orkney Islands in Scotland, I interviewed the general manager of the European Marine Energy Group, something like that. He was awesome. And... He was talking about a lot of different marine energy technologies that they test and how many of them are doing better and better all the time. Yeah, no, Scotland. In fact, in this blog I just published, so what's interesting is there's actually some small microgrids on islands off Scotland and France that have tidal resources in the microgrid already. So that is starting to happen. But I would say that of the countries in terms of ocean energy, the UK seems to be the leader, in particular Scotland, with tidal power. So apparently, as you may know, there's just a great tidal resource in that area. There has been some experiments also off of Australia, I know, and I mentioned already the Bay of Fundy. So that's the beauty of these things like microgrids is you can have all these different resources, but the challenge is how do they all work together? How do you orchestrate them? And that's actually the report I'm working on right now is about microgrid controls. The buzzwords now, artificial intelligence, IoT, Internet of Things, machine learning, all these kind of concepts, which basically just say that the systems get better over time as they learn the peculiarities of each resource. So maybe your microgrid has a certain kind of solar panel, it's got a certain kind of battery, maybe you started plugging EVs into it, and over time, the controls will sort of learn the little quirks and just get better and better at sort of managing them and knowing like when I call upon this resource, it responds 95% of the time, this one 75% of the time and that all of that then kind of gets rolled in. So it's fascinating. So I think that's what's really cool about the controls, but on the opposite end, there are microgrids that just want to do simple things. And so sometimes simpler is better too. So. I'm not an advocate for always making every microgrid the fanciest microgrid in the world. When you're in Africa and there's no other grid, simpler is better and just a simple inverter 
maybe that's all you need for that microgrid or whatever technology. I'm going to bring you back to your books. So you said you haven't written one in 10 years. What's going on there? <laughs> well, the last book I wrote was right before I joined, which was then Pike, which became Navigant, which became Guidehouse. And writing a book takes a lot of time, first of all. And the last one, what actually took the most amount of time is it had photographs and getting the rights to all those photographs was a big job. So I did have two interns, but one dropped out halfway through, which was kind of a pain. So it's really, I thought about writing another book. The challenge is now that I work for a consulting firm, how much of this great information I'm digging up could I actually put into a book? So I have thought about it and maybe I'll still propose something, but my interests now are more in videos and podcasts and social media, because I think, I don't think a book is outdated, but a book about cutting edge sort of stuff, it can go out of date fairly quickly. I've also thought about a living book, which was the concept at one point, I wanted to write a book called In My Backyard. And maybe I could still do it as kind of a living book that could have videos integrated. Maybe you and I could work on something, you know, you're interested. When I retire, I mean, I also wanted to write a novel and, you know, I don't know if I'll ever get around to doing some of this stuff other than energy, quite frankly. But in terms of energy, I've written so many books about California. I would definitely want to do something that would be more global. The other fantasy I had was more of a living book about developing world sort of energy issues where it's just very amazing if you could go to an Africa village and just see what a small little microgrid might provide for a rural hospital or go to Alaska. I've done a lot of work in Alaska and you just see these people living in these harsh conditions. They could not survive without that small microgrid. And it's also water. I heard one microgrid went down, the pipes froze and they couldn't get water for like three months because once those pipes froze, they had to go literally in and I guess replace them. So those are kind of the more dramatic stories that would be of interest to me. I know I'm plugging a lot today. I usually don't, but I did interview somebody. His name is Neil Belfay. He went to Africa and started a business where he loaned money so people could afford a battery and an LED light and some solar so that they can have a microgrid. And he changed the lives of over a million people by doing that. Yeah, no, it's, it's very impactful and rewarding of those kind of projects. So if I were to write a book, like I said, I would probably try to make it more of this virtual book or something like that, some sort of new concept. And like I said, I thought about it 10 years ago. Quite frankly, the guidehouse job does keep me pretty busy. So that's the other main challenge. How has the pandemic affected what you do? What it's done, and I actually wrote a report about how COVID-19 is impacting the microgrid market. But personally for me, I didn't like to travel a lot, but I would do public speaking maybe every other month or at most once a month during sort of the key periods. And I do miss, I mean, I've attended some virtual conferences, but some of them were so sterile, I have to admit, with just slides and not even a Zoom screen. So you don't even see the people if you're presenting to, and there's no sort of feedback by faces or anything. It's kind of I don't know how to describe it, but it feels weird. I guess it's probably the same thing when sports teams are playing in empty stadiums and there's no one cheering or whatever. But 
the thing I miss the most is the personal interaction because a lot of the good information you get in an emerging market like microgrids are those chance meetings or dinners or happy hours where someone introduces you to another person who introduces you to someone else. And so that has, I think, harmed the business in terms of certain kinds of just chance meetings. Now, Zoom is great and I'm still getting work done. I did used to work remotely anyway, so that part hasn't really changed. But in-person meetings, there's something about meeting someone in person that's just different even than Zoom, and I'm sure you've had the same experience. So I'm not getting some of the tidbits of information I'd probably get if I was still going to conferences. But on the other hand, I guess you're saving those travel costs, the lost time from, you know, I've been to Australia a few times and those things, but those are the things that also are fun about your job is, hey, I'm going to Australia or even Hawaii. I have spoke at Hawaii for three years in a row, and that was always great. You can add a little vacation. Those are the little perks I'm sort of missing from my job. Can you talk about some of the setbacks that you've had? When I first started, so I was trained as a journalist. I definitely had some setbacks as a journalist. I don't want to tell you some of the stories. Remember, I'll just say one story. Um, <laughs> when I was still an investigative reporter. And five months after a story came out, someone found out that one of the quotes I had, I guess I had put it in the wrong person's mouth. It was like investigative reporting that went on for months and I had a scribbled piece of paper. And this is, I think, when I was still using a typewriter. So this is 84. And I just remember... The editor, who was an old school guy, I found out he was a hard drinker, you know, sort of, a, uh, what was that, a Mary Tyler Moore, the old gruff editor now, Lou Grant. He was kind of a uh, Lou Grant type. And I remember him yelling in the phone, I am absolutely livid. And I remember the word livid. I was going, that's a great word. But, you know, it, it was not a very... So that was in my, my journalism career. In terms of more recently, it's more when you do these market forecasts I remember the first time they did the forecast on ocean energy, I felt so intimidated, like, how am I supposed to predict the future, especially with something so new? And what you learn over time is you, you have to be able to defend your forecast. I prefer doing multiple scenarios. The company has moved away from that more because of time and space in the reports. We keep making the reports shorter. So it's really more about the forecasting the future. Because generally, you're probably going to be wrong, but you just have to have a methodology you can defend and sounds valid. And we do do that. I mean, we have more data on microgrids than anyone else, but we're continuing to refine it. And so that's kind of the challenge. I wouldn't say it's necessarily a setback, but that's kind of my biggest worry at times is if someone goes, how could you say this about, you know, whatever, and just being able to have a defensible forecast. I had you talk about your setbacks and you didn't want to talk about them that much. And I talked too much about them probably. But I'm not livid, okay? Can you share the successes you're most proud of? Of my books, the book I'm most proud of, and I just found out it is being reprinted, is the Wind Power book called Reaping the Wind. I mentioned I'd like to write novels someday. So in this book, I tried to kind of write it as if it was a novel following a few key characters even kind of had like a narrator guy. His name was Randy Tinkerman. So he had a great name. He had like this New York gangster voice. And I captured that in the book. You know, he was 
talking about corruption with a wind company I won't identify right here. But that, in terms of my writing, was the book I was proudest of. Some of the stuff I've done that was the most rewarding was writing songs, I have to admit. You know, when I wrote a song and then had a band perform that song and maybe had a particularly great rendition of the song. So we definitely did improvise and I enjoy improvising. I enjoy also doing some poetry readings and even playing music behind poets, you know, more on the artistic side. But in terms of my most recent work, it is now, I mentioned the Excel forecasts and the fear of them, but now I generally have more support on the forecast and that part I enjoy. I enjoy laying out the concepts of how to do the forecast. It's just that since I'm 64 years old, I'd much rather have a 20 or 30 something, have more energy to spend maybe up till midnight looking at all the numbers and asking me questions and even challenging my initial thoughts. I do enjoy that. I'm doing it right now. And I have someone, I'm an early morning riser. He's a late night owl. So it's always kind of funny to see, okay, he sent me something at one in the morning, you know, what did he come up with? And then looking at it. Being a journalist, I do enjoy still interviewing people. And I do also enjoy, I guess what's satisfying is working with large corporations that are now responding to climate change. So as I mentioned, my first book, Search of Environmental Excellence, I was kind of skeptical about. In fact, I thought, was I greenwashing with this book? You know, is our businesses really doing that much for the environment? But over time, I've learned that it takes a champion. You can have a champion in government. You can have a champion as an environmental activist. You can have a champion in a corporation. I wouldn't say it doesn't matter, but it takes champions in all these different realms. And so it's always rewarding when you hear a story of how someone in government made something happen or a corporation. And lately, it's more the corporations that's surprising me, or I should say the investment community, which seems to have really bought into climate change. Not all, but you're seeing more and more announcements of billion dollar commitments to climate change. And so that's you know, being a part of changing society and the status quo to recognize the problem of climate change is definitely one of the more rewarding parts of my work. Microsoft recently signed a deal with a company that I work with, just a great company called Soul Systems, where they're doing 500 megawatts of solar. Part of the contract is that 10% of the profits go back to the communities and that the people working on the projects are diverse and that they're closer to the communities that need clean energy. Just a fantastic deal. So companies really are doing something. Yeah, there's a project, a JFK terminal in New York City, where Schneider Electric is partnering with this big investor, Carlisle Group. They are investing in a microgrid where they got the pension funds from those employees at the airport to invest. They even did zip code searches to hire locally, local people to help build the microgrid. I mean, it was just an amazing kind of, especially coming from an investment sort of perspective. You don't hear that often, but I guess the Carlisle Group's a little different, but their whole model with Schneider Electric is this energy as a service kind of idea where they're applying it to a Maryland local government facility, same model where they don't have to put any of their own money 
the company takes on the risk, it guarantees a certain amount of carbon reduction, guarantees this, guarantees that. So those are the kind of projects that really are showing that you can use money in creative ways to deliver goods to people who wouldn't be able to afford it otherwise. So at first we were talking about all the bad things going on with regard to climate. And now we're talking about some very good things that are happening. What is your vision for the next 20, 30, 40 years for the world, for the country? Where do you see this going? Trying to be positive. I mean, I, I generally am fairly optimistic, although I think that optimistic view is being challenged, particularly this year, given COVID-19, given the wildfires, just recently another wildfire relatively close to where I live is happening. For the first time, I've had bad air quality for weeks. And so that's something that's making me realize more of what other people in the world experience on a more regular basis. So there are things that can get you down, although some of those things can also motivate you. So I hope, my hope would be that the negative impacts of climate change, as I mentioned, we're starting to see investors react to that, I think. And the Paris Accord, hopefully things happen and the U.S. rejoins the Paris Accord and, and there is more uh, collaboration, I would say. I think when I was talking about developing world markets, of course, there's what the industrialized economies can do, but a lot of those developing world economies in some ways are arguing, well, let us pollute a little bit too so we can have you know economic development. I would argue against that. I think the coolest thing would be if some of the new technologies could be deployed in those developing world markets so they learn from our mistakes and don't go down a path where then they're going to have to change. Typically, we would give them the worst stuff. You could say, oh yeah, we'll give them old diesel generators or, or whatever. So my vision would be if we could plant new technologies in those developing world markets, they shouldn't have to feel like they want to catch up to the rest of us by using the old technology. So you think we're going to make it? I would say the jury is still out, but I think it's still going to get worse than what I actually had expected just a few years ago. It does seem like the changes are accelerating. So now the question is, can we respond quick enough? I'm still going to be optimistic, especially publicly. I think a lot of us want to say something publicly. Maybe internally we have our own inner doubts. But I'm, I'm not despondent. I still look forward even to my work. I look forward to retiring and, and doing some of the more fun things, but I still will be working on this issue for quite some time. Probably even after I'm technically retired, I'll still be doing interviews and still be doing stuff on this topic. I think we need more champions, as I mentioned before, and hopefully we get a few more in government in the U.S. We've been swimming upstream a little bit recently, but on the other hand, as I mentioned, the private sector is stepping up. I think the good news is, is solar is cheap and maybe the cheapest resources. So there's no longer a conflict between the environment and the economy. And so that should make, I mean, in California, soon every home will have to be net zero energy. These are policies that should hopefully stem the tide, but they will take a while to have a big impact. 
Has the pandemic changed your vision of the future when it comes to climate change? I always was sort of a remote worker, so it's not changing me personally, but it does seem like with the climate change, even just emissions from traveling to offices, I think that's a positive on COVID-19 as more people aware of, well, maybe remote working, we should have just a policy of remote working, maybe not all the time, but much more and maybe less travel, which would help reduce emissions. So there could be a positive from it. The more recent surge is a little depressing. There's no easy answers. I do think, though, it's making people more aware of how interconnected we are. And these big issues have to be solved by collaboration as opposed to too much infighting and too much divisiveness. Do you have any questions for me? What do you see about utilities? Are you optimistic about utilities sort of adapting to the new world and responding to climate change? Or are you sort of thinking they're going to help, but they're not the leaders, they'll follow at some point? Or what's, what's your opinion about that? When I was first exposed to the concept of metrics, probably 30, 35 years ago, I was taught that you get what you measure. And so utilities are measured basically by profit. And so they are going to chase the dollars. And if you put the dollars in the same place as climate change mitigation, they're going to chase it and they're going to do great at it. Or you can change what they're chasing to be climate change mitigation somehow. But one way or another, you're going to get what you measure. And so you better start measuring the right things or you won't get them. Yeah, I guess that's this trend of performance-based sort of rate making, you know, or, or, or an element of that where I know there have been some experiments about that, like creating new metrics. And you're right, that's probably what we're going to have to do because of climate change. Because, yeah, if you can't measure it, then people don't value it. It's just sort of the nature of the beast. Then on that note, I'm going to wrap this up and I'm going to wrap it up with a wrap. You were interviewing him, you were in dancing. When you were writing In Search of Environmental Excellence, you interviewed James Hansen. What started you out, it may sound absurd, was that you were watching a bird. You started out as an environmental fighter. You write books and you're also a songwriter. Gavin Newsom did an executive order you see. By 2035, you can only buy an EV. Photos take time to get approvals. It takes time, it takes tears. So you haven't written another book for 10 years. I interviewed this guy in Marine Energy. He is my idol. He has microgrids that leverage title. You enjoy writing a book about a microgrid. And earlier in your career, an editor was livid. Writing books is hard, but you wouldn't rescind. They're re-releasing, reaping the wind. In this world, we're all interconnected. It's sad that climate change is worse than we expected. No, no, wait a minute. You wrote this as, as during this interview. <laughs> well, that was quite, quite the, the song. You've written a song for me. Well, thank you. No, that was cool. P. 
Peter didn't have recordings of his songs that he could easily share, but if you want to hear a few seconds of his music, go to YouTube, search for Becoming a Local Vault, and check out the first 20 seconds or so of that video. It's from 2009, and you'll get to hear Peter and the Space Debris. It's also fun to see Peter talking about local vaults, basically distributed energy, and microgrids over a decade ago. If you have comments or questions about the podcast, visit my website at crevatenergyinnovations.com and drop me an email. I would love to hear from you. And if you're enjoying the Climate Champions podcast series, please subscribe, rate it five stars if you're an Apple user, and tell your climate-concerned friends about it. Peter said that being part of changing society and the status quo to recognize the problem of climate change is definitely one of the more rewarding parts of his work. Integrating his passion for the environment with his work, including writing and singing about it, is inspirational, motivates others, and multiplies the number of people helping to mitigate climate change. (laughs) 